As we prepare to hear the word of God read and proclaimed, let us once again turn to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, creator of the seen and unseen, at the beginning of time you created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them by your word through the power of your spirit. So send to us now your spirit who moved over the face of the waters to move within our hearts and minds that they might be opened to receive the recreating power of your word. Through Jesus Christ, we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Scripture reading this morning comes from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, as we continue our sermon series through John's first epistle. Hear the word of the Lord, it is written. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him Truly, the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. I don't think that it is unusual for a Christian at some point in his or her walk with the Lord to wonder, am I really saved? Do I really have true saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And these questions might come to us in the midst of some deep spiritual struggle, maybe with sin, They might come as a result of personal tragedy or suffering or loss. Perhaps as we are faced with the death of a loved one or faced with our own mortality. Or they might just come about unexpected out of seemingly nowhere. But whatever the cause that brought about these questions, you want in that moment to have a strong assurance of salvation. You want to have confidence that you belong to the Lord as a child of God. The question is, how? How are you going to know in that moment that you are saved? How are you going to know that you know the Lord in a saving way? And I can tell you that it isn't going to be enough in those moments to try to dismiss these nagging questions by thinking that just because you once said that you believed in Jesus, that you just attended worship, that just because you were, relatively speaking, a good person, that you are indeed saved. These sorts of questions aren't resolved in a flippant way. They shouldn't be resolved in a flippant way. 
If we believe that we are saved simply for one of these reasons, then perhaps we should be examining whether we have true saving faith. It could be that we are rather presumptuous in our belief that we are saved. It also shouldn't satisfy us to believe that we are saved simply because we know about Jesus or have knowledge of what is contained in the pages of Scripture. God's word declares in James chapter 2, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You can have knowledge of what is in Scripture. You can have some knowledge of Christian theology. These things do not in and of themselves equate to saving faith. I have met people who have demonstrated remarkable knowledge of Scripture and theology and would be the first to tell you that they do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Likewise, our senses shouldn't be altogether trusted either, though. It shouldn't satisfy us. Indeed, it cannot satisfy us to believe that we are saved simply because we had some experience which moved us emotionally at some retreat weekend or because we had a sense of being in the presence of something transcendent in worship on one Sunday morning or because we thought we heard a still small voice speak to us during a quiet moment during our day. And while I certainly don't want to discount coming into worship or a time of personal devotion with all of our senses open to the movement of God in our midst, we should present ourselves entirely before the Lord in our acts of worship. We should long to experience God's presence and be emotionally stimulated by him. Nor do I want to dismiss the importance of an intellectual pursuit of God. This is, after all, how we love God with our minds. But the reality is neither of these things are going to result in a deep and abiding sense of assurance. You see, we are not merely intellectual creatures. We are more than just a brain on a stick. We're also more than just emotional creatures, So we're going to need more than a cold rationalism, more than a passing emotional experience, no matter how powerful it might be, if we are going to have a true and lasting assurance. And John wants to begin to tell us how we know that we know, how we know that we know the Lord Jesus Christ in a saving way. John has a profound concern for the church to have an assurance of salvation. And he speaks not only as an apostle with the authority of one who had been an eyewitness to Jesus Christ, not only as one who had walked the Christian faith for many, many years, but also as a pastor who loved his people and desired for them to enjoy the benefits of belonging to Christ as his blood-bought people. Now, we said just a few weeks ago when we began this sermon series through John's epistle that John presents us with three tests in his first letter which are meant to encourage an assurance of salvation in true believers. There is a a doctrinal test, a test of truth based on belief in Jesus Christ. 
There's a moral test, a test of righteousness or, or obedience to Jesus Christ and his word. And there's a social test, a test of love. As previously stated, these are all avenues of assurance, right belief, right obedience, right love. They are ways that we can know that we know the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. And already in chapter 1, we have seen John encouraging right belief. Pastor Scott covered this last Sunday in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. We need to have a right understanding of who God is. And John has told us that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Uh, Pastor Scott did a great job laying out for us what it means that God is light and the implications of our understanding that this is who God is in his essence. Uh, John will come back to having right belief as a test of our assurance later on in chapter 2 as he focuses in on professing Jesus to be the Son of God in verses 18 and following. It is essential that we have a correct understanding of God because our understanding of who God is shapes who we are and how we live. Orthodoxy, right belief, leads to orthopraxy, right practice or faithful living. Right living flows out of right belief. So for instance, if you don't know God to be a holy God, then you probably aren't going to be concerned one bit about sin in your life, and it will show. Or if you don't know God to be a loving God, then you're probably going to live in constant fear of being punished by him. So you can see how you aren't going to, to gain a true assurance of salvation, believing the wrong things about God and living in the wrong ways. But here in chapter 2, in in verses 1 through 6, John presents us with a moral test. How do we know that we know Jesus Christ and thus know ourselves to be saved by him? We keep, we obey his commandments. This is what verse 3 tells us. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. We want to consider this moral test this morning. But first, we should grasp the importance of what John says in the first couple of verses of this chapter. You see, before moving on from these verses we covered last Sunday, John wants to make clear that nothing he has said so far is an endorsement to sin. This is was obviously a problem in John's day. It was what was being encouraged, apparently, by those John was opposing as false teachers. But it's also a problem in our day. We say things like, God is love. And and that's true, but when that's said in our culture, practically what it means is that God is willing to tolerate and accept all of our vices, That God simply forgives us of any and all sins and that we can continue to live in them. But follow the logic of what John is presenting here. John has stated that anyone who denies himself to be a sinner is a liar. God has declared in his word the universality of sin. All have broken God's law. None are righteous, not one. 
Therefore, declaring yourself to be sinless is declaring God to be a liar. And you can't keep doing these things. Declaring God to be a liar while being a liar yourself, denying that you are a sinner and continuing to live in the darkness of your sin, all the while claiming to have fellowship with God. It doesn't work. God does not dwell in darkness and cannot have fellowship with those who dwell in darkness. God is light, as John has declared to us. If we want to have fellowship with God, then we must dwell in light. We must live not by lies, but by truth. The good news that John proclaims to us at the end of chapter 1 is that God desires to have fellowship with us. Even though we are sinners, so he has created a means by which we can approach him. John has told us in verse 9 that for those who confess their sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a remarkable truth this is. But, The promise of the gospel that God is gracious to forgive sin should never be misconstrued as an endorsement to sin. Now, there have been those throughout history who have found it to be the perfect arrangement. God loves to forgive us our sins, and we love to sin. So why not sin all the more? John wants us not to misunderstand, though. Even as he has proclaimed that God is a forgiving God, he now proclaims that he is reminding us of God's promises. Why? So that you may not sin. See, John is quick to point out that far from granting us permission to sin, God's grace encourages us to righteousness. True knowledge of the nature of the forgiveness of sins offered to us by God should not, should not provide us with a feeling of freedom to sin, but rather out of an overwhelming sense of the great love which God has shown to us and of such an undeserved forgiveness that we have been offered, we should actually be desirous not to sin against God. Instead of pursuing the things of the flesh that God's grace might abound all the more, we should be pursuing holiness that God might be pleased and glorified through our lives and in order that our fellowship with God might be deepened. Notice, though, that John's not delusional about the problem of sin and its continued power in the world, even in the lives of believers. Even as John is pointing us toward a life of grateful obedience in response to God's graciousness toward us in Jesus Christ, he understands that we're not yet fully perfected. We can and we still do sin. So John states, but if anyone does sin, there's a recognition of the ongoing struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. But in the midst of this, John wants us to have a firm understanding of who God is in Jesus Christ, what he has done for us. So John is warning us not to allow the deceiver to convince us that sin is unimportant, but also when we do sin, we mustn't allow the accuser to convince us that we are ruined and that the Lord will not accept us. So John continues. Verse 
proclaiming, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And now John has put more meat on the bones of the gospel message. In fact, this is, this is one of the greatest statements in all of the New Testament. Against the threat of the accuser, we have a strong advocate. As Pastor Scott said, we have one who is on our side. Now, we might recognize this word advocate. It is parakletos in the Greek. The same word which was used in chapter 14 of John's gospel when Jesus tells his disciples, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper a parakletos, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Helper is the same word in the Greek as advocate. Don't miss that Jesus says that the Father will give you another helper. Jesus is our first helper. The Holy Spirit is sent to us as another helper. The amazing truth is that we have a helper here on earth in the Holy Spirit, and we have a helper in heaven, Jesus Christ. Even as the Spirit comes and convicts us of our sin, leads us to all truth, works within us, and helps us to to pray and to worship and to live righteous lives, Jesus Christ stands before the Father in heaven advocating for us despite our sinfulness. You see this word advocate in this sense carries a legal connotation. It is presenting Jesus to us as our legal representation who speaks a favorable word for us, who provides a strong defense for us, who pleads our cause for us in the presence of of the heavenly father and our advocate is righteous in every way so he isn't presenting us as something that we are not he isn't pleading our case as though we are innocent he isn't making excuses for our sins saying that there were extenuating circumstances that should be taken into consideration that demand a not guilty verdict no he is acknowledging our guilt before the father but he is presenting his vicarious work as the grounds for our acquittal. And this is exactly where John takes us. Jesus isn't just our paraclete, our advocate. He is also our propitiation. Jesus comes and willingly gives up his life that we might have atonement for sins, that the wrath of God toward our sin might be taken upon himself, that he might suffer the penalty of our sins, drinking every last drop of that cup of God's wrath that none would be left for us, that our sins might be entirely cleansed by his sacrifice and we might be forgiven. This is gloriously good news this is the amazing love that we sang about during the hymn of assurance 
And this same one who stood in our place, who though he was sinless, became our substitutionary sacrifice, taking the penalty of our sins that we might be forgiven and cleansed of sin, who suffered and died for us, now stands as our advocate in heaven before the Father. He is both our atoning sacrifice and our advocate. As one commentator put it, in short, Jesus is now in the Father's presence as the eternal high priest, who having atoned for the sins of his people now stands as their effective advocate to ensure that their sins do not disqualify from fellowship with the Father. Or as John Calvin stated more simply, Christ's intercession is the continual application of his death to our salvation. And just so we don't misunderstand, Jesus was not some helpless victim in this whole thing. Not some helpless victim of the Father's will. Nor was he doing something that he was reluctant to do. Nor was he some third party intervening before the sinner in a reluctant God. No, do you understand? God, in his great love for us, did this for us. It was done in accordance with God's holy will. And the Father and the Son are one in both their love for us and their will toward us. The Father sent his Son out of love for us, and the Son willingly and joyfully endured the shame of the cross. God did this for us that we might be reconciled to him and restored to fellowship with him. So what John wants us to understand is this, fellowship with God is possible because the sins that caused offense to God have been removed through Jesus' atoning sacrifices so that God's wrath no longer abides on those who have fled for refuge in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when John tells us that Jesus takes away the sins of the world, we shouldn't misunderstand that to mean that salvation is universal, that all are saved. Otherwise, John would be contradicting himself. What he intends by this, rather, is that Jesus' atoning death is sufficient for all. It is effective only for those who place saving faith in Jesus Christ. But in the sense that those who are among the elect, who were chosen before the foundation of the world, they will be from every tribe, nation, and tongue, and people group. So Jesus' atoning death is for the world. But understanding what God has done for us to forgive us our sins, why? Why would we continue to dwell in sin? Why would we allow sin to continue in our lives, not confessing it to God, not seeking forgiveness, not seeking to put it to death in us that we might continue to have fellowship with God? If we truly know Jesus and what he has done for us, not just on an intellectual level, but on a heart level, then why would we not seek to please him? And so all of this sets up this moral test, which John presents to us in verse 3. You can claim to have fellowship with God. You can claim this or that about your personal righteousness, but the the way to know, as a matter of fact, that you have come to know God, not just know facts about God, but truly have a saving personal knowledge of God is this. 
do you keep his commandments? It really isn't too complicated. A person's words must be tested by his works. Our actions will authenticate what we assert. So as John Stott stated, John here insists that no religious experience is valid if it does not have moral consequences. It doesn't really matter what we claim, therefore, about having saving knowledge of God if our claim of having knowledge of God is contradicted by our conduct. Or, as John says it very bluntly in verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. If our conduct contradicts our confession that we belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, there's a good chance we are lying that we are truly saved through faith. Now, let me be clear here. This is not to say that our obedience is some sort of condition for having saving knowledge of God. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are not saved by our works. But obedience to God's commandments is a clear sign that we do know God. God saved us, in fact, in order to glorify him. And if we have been saved, then we will want to glorify him through our lives. At the very least, then, even if we are saved, we can't have assurance of our salvation if we aren't living in obedience to his commandments. We should also acknowledge here that since John himself has already acknowledged that none are sinless on this side of eternity, that this is not implying that we can reach perfection in this life and be sinless. John does not intend for us to believe that those who know God will never fail in their obedience to God. Rather, what he is asserting is that true believers' lives won't be characterized by disobedience. There, There won't be constant, ongoing disobedience. There might be failures at points, but in those failures, those who have saving faith will fly to Christ for refuge. They will find in Christ their all-sufficient sacrifice and the source of their forgiveness. They, they will repent and seek to live once again in accordance with God's word and in fellowship with God. John Calvin is certainly right in noting then he, the apostle John, does not mean that those who wholly satisfy the law keep his commandments. And no such instance can be found in the world. But those who strive according to the capacity of human infirmity to form their life in obedience to God. Dearly beloved, this is what we are looking for in our lives as we are asking ourselves, how do I know that I have come to know God? We are examining our lives to see if we are striving to live in obedience to Jesus Christ. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul is calling us to in in Philippians chapter 2 where he states, Therefore, my beloved, As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If we are striving to obey God in Jesus Christ, then Paul is right. God is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, we we won't be striving to obey God. We won't be aiming to please God if God isn't at work in us. We will be living as those dead in our sin. 
But if God is at work in us, then he will be at work shaping us according to his image and the power of his spirit within us. He will be at work making us holy as he is holy. So people might say that they know God, but if they continue to live in unrepentant sin, if they walk in darkness, as John has said, if they do not show forth fruit of a transformed life, then they don't truly have a personal knowledge of God. It might be that they have plenty of intellectual knowledge about God. And as I've already said, while intellectual knowledge is a good thing, it does not, it cannot produce in us righteousness. Knowing God in a deeply personal and intimate way, though, brings us into relationship with God that has the power to change us, to to transform us into his image. And this is John's point. There is no saving knowledge of God that is not accompanied by a growing righteousness. But striving to obey is a very clear evidence of a transformed life brought about by saving knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. And notice here that there's a strong connection between knowing and obeying and loving God. To know God is to obey God, and to obey God is to love God. And the more you know God, the more you love him in desire to obey him, in desire to know him more. This is what John tells us in verse 5. He presents to us in this verse a contrast between the one who is lying about knowing God and the one who obeys God, in whom the love of God is being perfected or being brought to its intended goal. To understand what John is telling us here, we need to recognize that John isn't speaking here of God's love for us. He's speaking of our love for God. John will later say in chapter 5 and verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. We love God if and when we keep his commandments. The intended goal of loving God is obeying God. Jesus said in John chapter 14, the same passage in which he told his disciples of the other helper, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And this really is proof of love, isn't it? The proof of love, as John Stott stated, is loyalty. Our actions speak much louder than our words. This is true of our relationship with God. It's true of our relationships with one another. I can tell my wife every day that I love her, and I can express this love in the sweetest, sappiest language. But if I don't seek to uphold my wedding vows, to obey the vows I promise to obey, then my words are empty. I don't really love my wife. And if you truly love your spouse, upholding wedding vows will not be a chore. It will not feel like a burden, at least not usually right? It'll be a delight. You obey because you love. And what we find is that the more you obey, the more your love grows. And the more your love grows, the deeper the intimacy is between you and your spouse. And the more you grow in knowledge of one another, and you want to grow in knowledge of one another. And this is a way your relationship grows and is brought to maturity and completion. Uh, 
Your love is perfected. This is what John is pointing us to, the connection between knowing and loving and obeying. And our hope should be to grow in maturity in Jesus, which in turn brings about a deep assurance of salvation. Assurance is built and becomes stronger, not just from a one-time event or experience in our lives, but through a constant process of striving to know the Lord, obey the Lord, and to love the Lord. And the truth of the matter is that we, aren't, we weren't saved never to think of the Lord again until the day he whisked us off to heaven. That isn't it at all. We were saved in order that we might know the Lord, that we might be in fellowship with him, that we might be brought into relationship with him and in knowing the Lord, that we might abide in him and be transformed and produce fruit in our lives to the glory of God. This is what John says in the final verse of our passage. By this we know that we are in him. Who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked? How do you know that you know him? Well, when the words of Jesus from John 15 are true of your life, you know. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Dearly beloved, if you want to have assurance, then your walk should match your talk. Your life should look ever more in increasing measure like the life of Jesus Christ as you obey him. As one commentator stated, like father, like son, like savior, like saint. Christ's life becomes my life, my example, my goal, and my pattern. We must note that it is abiding in him that enables me to live like him. I don't do it in my own strength. I do it in his I don't have to be like him to be assured. I want to be like him, and I am assured. So how about you, dearly beloved? Do you know this assurance? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of your great love for us, Lord, that even while we were yet sinners, you sent your only son to suffer and die for us, to offer up his life as a substitutionary sacrifice, to take your wrath against sin on himself, even though he was sinless, Lord, that we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would Help us this day to have assurance as we seek to walk in your ways, as we strive to know you and to obey you and to love you. Lord, we pray that you would give us that assurance. And Lord, as we come to know you, that we would desire to know you more, as we come to love you, that we would desire to love you more as we obey you. Lord, we would ever be striving to obey you in our closer walk with Jesus Christ. Help us to do that today. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.
In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Philippian Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? We believe in Christ Jesus, though he was the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name 